This podcast is brought to you by Church Society, a fellowship contending to reform and renew the Church of England in biblical faith. You'll find more information about Church Society and all the things that we do on our website, churchsociety.org. You'll also find there the full archive of the podcast. Welcome to the Church Society podcast. I'm Ros Clark. I'm the Associate Director of Church Society. And today I'm joined by Andrew Atherston. Andrew, uh, just tell us who you are and what you do. My day job is teaching at Wycliffe Hall in Oxford. So preparing people for Christian ministry in different sorts, uh, many of them for ordained ministry in the Church of England. Wonderful. And um, you're here today to talk to us a little bit about the Anglican communion. It's a phrase that perhaps many of us were not hugely familiar with, but seems to be being discussed uh, quite a lot at the moment for various reasons that we'll come to. Uh, But perhaps it would be useful just to begin by, uh, if you could tell us a little bit about what the Anglican communion actually is. That's a more complicated question than it sounds. (laughs) And that's one of the reasons for our our, uh, debates in the Anglican world at the moment. The Anglican Communion, uh, simply understood, is a network, it's a fellowship of Anglican churches around the world, uh, originating in the 19th century, and where uh, especially English uh, Anglicans went around the world, uh, either on business or on mission. Uh, They took the Christian gospel with them, they planted uh, churches which were familiar back at home, and those have grown, they've multiplied, uh, they've become very much a a planet-wide movement. Um, And so there are now 42 independent churches, Anglican churches around the world, all of which make up this Anglican fellowship. So the word communion uh, really just means a a fellowship of of Anglicans worldwide. Great. And so in the history of that, when people originally went and planted those churches, and because they were Anglican, they planted Anglican churches, were those churches originally all under the banner of the Church of England? Were they originally always independent? How, how did that sort of work itself out into the structure that we have at the moment? There are some very early calls for independence. So when uh, members of the Church of England go to New England and start planting churches uh, back in the 17th century, they are connected to the Church of England. But of course, uh, the Wars of Independence, the Americans want to do something quite quite distinct. Um, so from the 18th century onwards, you have an Anglican expression there, but trying not to be English, trying to be American. That's why they tend to call themselves Episcopalians uh, rather than Anglicans. Uh, it, it, then you have uh, big movements into, into India with the, the British East India Company, uh, part of this growing uh, Anglican empire, of course, uh, in, into Africa under Queen Victoria, and where Queen Victoria sent her armies um, to create protectorates or, or new colonies. Um, so the, the, the Church of England also sent its missionaries um, and started planting churches. Some of those were, of course, for, uh, for army recruits or for business people, for merchants, for traders, uh, but also then increasingly for the local populations as well, who began to embrace the gospel in this particular sort of English clothing. So it's a, a mixed picture. And my understanding is that that um, 
it's still happening in a sort of way. There are there are new provinces. Um, joining. It wasn't, uh, I believe, Chile. There was a new province there relatively recently. So places that weren't necessarily originally connected with uh, British Empire or Church of England missionaries, there are growing uh, expressions of Anglicanism in, in all sorts of places. That's exactly right. So Anglicanism is no longer an English expression of Christianity, even though we still have this word Anglo uh, at, the, at the front of it. Uh, for, for many Anglicans around the world today, English is not their first language, um, and maybe they don't speak English at all um, in terms of the majority language uh, of those provinces. So there are now 42 provinces, 42 independent Anglican churches around the world, um, and they've been multiplying at a rate of knots uh, since the 1970s and 80s as these sections of the world have become independent and tried to do things contextually and culturally on their own terms. So the most recent ones uh, were... The, very recently, Angola and Mozambique have become the 42nd province of the Anglican Communion. Uh, of course, they've never been part of the British Empire or the British Commonwealth or the Commonwealth of Nations, as we now call it. Um, English is not even the European language spoken there. It would be Portuguese instead. 41st province is Alexandria, uh, North Africa, um, around Egypt and Morocco. Um, again, it, it might be Arabic as the, as the main language. Um, and as you say, province number 40 was Chile, uh, which would be Spanish speaking. Yes. So this is part of the complexity of the communion. It begins with an English origin, but has now become a, a very multicultural, multilingual sort of Christian movement. And you, you described it as a, a fellowship, which to me, that implies a sort of friendly, informal network. It's Am I am I right about that? Is it does it have sort of um, legal links between the provinces, or is it at that sort of level of you know we all think you're great and we want to be friends with you? Most of the connections between the provinces are are informal. Um, they're relational. They're sometimes united by what are called the bonds of affection. Um, so it's it's about Anglicans in different parts of the world wanting to relate and and um, having those sorts of friendships together. Um, the the only part of the Anglican Communion which has a legal basis is the Anglican Consultative Council, uh, which we might come on to a little bit later. Uh, but okay. the the rest of the Communion is is informal, um, it, it's fluid, and it's just sort of grown incrementally, and it's based upon. Uh, relationships between Christians. Okay, and um, that that's obviously a, a great thing to have that we, um, you know, build relationships with our brothers and sisters around the world. Um, there are these things uh, that I've heard people talk about called the instruments of communion. Now, uh, we're, not, we're not talking about musical instruments. We're talking about things that presumably, well, I don't know, it, their goal is to build the fellowship, to build relationships. Just explain to us, what, what are the instruments of communion and what do they do briefly? It's a very new idea. It's really only an idea born in the 1970s and 80s. Interesting. Uh, it Interesting. doesn't go back further than that. But uh, if you read the Anglican textbooks uh, recently written, they will suggest there are four instruments of communion. So four sorts of global networks which try to build these relationships. 
Uh, one of them is the Anglican, uh, is the Archbishop of Canterbury himself, uh, which, of course, uh, that role goes back to 597 AD and the mission of Augustine to a little village in Kent, uh, which by historical quirk was Canterbury. Uh, Justin Welby is number 105 in the line of archbishops, and quite a lot of his role is travelling the world and connecting Anglicans. Um, so he, he does a lot of that re relational work. Um, then in the 19th century, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury had the idea of getting all the diocesan bishops in the world together for consultation. And he brought them to Lambeth, uh, his home, in 1867 for the first Lambeth Conference. And they've been happening every 10 years uh, ever since, up to the one in, in 2022. And the Lambeth Conference, again, doesn't have a, a legal basis. Uh, it doesn't have a constitution. It's just an informal invitation from the Archbishop for Anglicans around the world to gather and, and to consult. It doesn't have any uh, any legal power. So he can um, invite... In the 19th... Sorry. So he can invite um, whoever he wants to that. So we know, for example, in, in England, there are multiple denominations that would identify as Anglican in some way. Uh, we mentioned uh, North America earlier, and people may know there are different um, Anglican denominations there. It's literally up to Justin Welby which of those he chooses to invite. Exactly right. So the Lambeth Conference is a is a private party, which historically has been um, the invitations have been sent out by the Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, but it's up to every Archbishop whether they hold this event, who they invite to it, what the sort of programme is. Um, anyone could do that. But we have this tradition of this happening since the 1860s. OK, great. Sorry, I interrupted you. Um, what have we had? We well, had well, the Lambeth Conference. Two Carry on. Yeah. Two further instruments of communion, uh, both born in the 1970s. Uh, the third one is the Anglican Consultative Council, uh, which is the, the only one with a, with a legal basis in charity law um, the only one with a constitution, um, and that includes a lay person and a clergy person from every province in the world, um, and some bishops as well. And then in 1979, the newest of these instruments is called the Primate's Council, uh, the primate being the lead archbishop in every province. And that's, again, an informal gathering. They get together, they consult, they try to build these bonds of affection around the globe. So is there any um, definition formalised anywhere about what it means to be an Anglican province? Do these provinces all have to adopt the same historic formularies, for example? Do they, presumably they don't all have the same canon law as the Church of England. What constitutes their Anglicanness? Do they just call themselves Anglican and, and that counts? At its boiled down level, an Anglican province is one of the provinces listed uh, by the Anglican Consultative Council on its list of provinces. Um, so you can apply to join that list uh, and there's a, a mechanism for that to happen. So every time there's a new province created around the world, like Angola and Mozambique, uh, they apply to be a new province. Um, a, a, a team from the Anglican Consultative Council uh, investigated what was happening in those regions, the growth of the churches, the health of the churches, 
the number of dioceses, their mission plans, their finances, um, and then said, yes, we think you should be a new province. And then all the other existing provinces um, get to say whether that new province should, should join and be one of, one of the number or not. So that, that's the way to do it. But every province has its own rules, um, its own canons, yeah. and it is free to decide its everything about its local life. Even its own doctrines are decided locally. There's no global Anglican church. The Church of Rome operates on a different basis. It's a global church headquartered at the Vatican, uh, and there are rules for the whole of the world. The Anglican world doesn't work like that. You have 42 entirely independent national churches. What sort of things, I don't know whether you've been involved in this work or not, but um, when, a, when a province applies, what sort of things would the representatives of the Anglican Conservative Council be, be looking for as they, they sort of evaluate whether that's a, a reasonable application? The chief thing is whether this province has a plan for growth and is likely to be uh, viable as an independent unit. So m- most provinces um, don't are not born outside of the Anglican world and then join it. Most are where there's been growth in the Anglican world and a particular part of the world is growing and therefore decides to become an independent unit rather than part of a bigger church. So Angola and Mozambique have been part of uh, the, the Anglicans of Southern Africa for a long time, but have now become independent. I, I've just been in I see. in Ghana, which is part of the the Church of West Africa. Uh, it's growing, and it would like to become province number forty three um, as a as a separate unit. So that's really encouraging, actually. Then that we're, if we're seeing new provinces, we can take that as an indication that there is genuinely church growth and and increasing. Um, uh, presence of Anglicanism in those places. That's an indication of, of what's happening there. That's great. So um, uh, we mentioned sort of communion as fellowship. Does it relate to then, we, we hear quite a lot, you and I both on General Synod about, you know, being in communion and, and people in broken communion and, and what that means. I have understood that, but maybe I'm wrong and you you can correct me. When we talk about being in broken communion, we mean these are people or this is a church where we would not share communion with them at at the Lord's table. Is that a, an oversimplification a simplification of what we mean? Or is it is it a word that's being used in two completely different senses? How how do those things relate? If there's quite a number of things, aren't there, in in our sort of church law that are about, you know, if you're a member of the Church of England or a church in communion with the Church of England. I don't know whether we're talking about the same sort of thing there or not. Those are interlocking questions, but we, we sometimes use the same words to cover different sorts of things. Um, so communion, in one sense, is used as Christians coming to the Lord's table and sharing bread and wine together. Holy communion, uh, as as the Book of Common Prayer describes it, the Lord's Supper. Um, Communion is also used uh, relationally in terms of of fellowship. I mean, it's the word Paul uses in 1 Corinthians, koinonia. Uh, That's that's the sort of fellowshipping word. One of the ways in which you express your communion, your fellowship, is by sharing communion. 
Um, and one of the ways in which you express your broken fellowship is by ceasing to share communion, uh, holy communion, in that in that sense. So so one is one is a sort of visual outworking um, of the relational aspects. Um, so yeah. you you could be in communion as provinces with each other, technically and theologically, and part of this network. You're still part of the Anglican communion, but because your fellowship is strained or stressed or breaking, you might decide that one of the ways visually you're going to demonstrate that is by saying, well, now's not the time to share Holy Communion together. But there might be many other ways in which you could demonstrate broken fellowship. Um, One of them might be sacramental, but there'd be multiple other ways in which that could be done. That's really helpful. Thank you. Okay, good. Well, let's go back to our Anglican Communion, which is mostly at the level of fellowship. Um, There have been signs, I, I would say, recently, that perhaps that fellowship is becoming stressed or strained or breaking. So people may remember last summer the Lambeth Conference met and there was a pretty substantial um, group of people who had been invited to that who did not go. Um, That wasn't the first time we've seen problems at the Lambeth Conference itself, is it? What's been going on there and why is that invitation not just a lovely, friendly, come and come and have a tea party in Canterbury chat. When the Lambeth Conference was first invented in 1867, uh, it, it originated because of relational difficulties amongst the Anglicans in Southern Africa. Uh, and there was a, a bishop of KwaZulu-Natal called John William Calenzo, uh, who was uh, teaching particular things theologically about the authority of scripture, uh, which were... Uh, unorthodox uh, and therefore there was a a sense that the Anglican world wanted to discipline him. So that was one of the reasons that Archbishop Longley in 1867 uh, called the Anglicans together. That was a very controversial move um, and some refused to attend even back then. The Archbishop of York refused to go to the First Lambeth Conference uh, because he thought it was the Archbishop of Canterbury um, extending his his authority beyond uh, where it should go. So he refused to take part um, and said, well, I'm not I'm not going to be involved in any sort of synod, um, which might be disciplining somewhere, some other bishop around the world. So those sorts of questions have continued to be controversial all the way into the present. Um, in in the 21st century, it's particularly um, problematic because we all know intimately what's happening in each other's provinces didn't used to be the case in a previous generation because we didn't have Twitter. We didn't have email. Uh, When the very first Archbishop of Calcutta was instituted back in the 19th century, evangelical by the name of Daniel Wilson, it took six months for a letter from Lambeth to reach Calcutta. So he he would have an issue in his province that he wanted advice on, and he would write a letter to London. Six months later, it would arrive in London, the Archbishop of Canterbury would reply. Six months later, the answer would arrive in Calcutta. So you've got you've got a year for any information to travel. Now it takes milliseconds. Um, and so there's much more scrutiny of what's happening in other parts of the world. And that means that the, the, the tensions come to the surface uh, much more easily.
Church Society is delighted to be partnering with the new Bishop of Ebbsfleet, Rob Munro, in a series of regional conferences in May and June this year. On five dates and in different locations, all of which you'll find the details for on our website, churchsociety.org, we'll be meeting with ministers, church wardens, PCC members and others to hear from Rob about his role and the state of mutual flourishing for complementarians within the Church of England, but also we'll be spending time thinking about living in love and faith and how we can be best contending together to reform and renew the Church of England in biblical faith at this difficult time. Please do join us. You'll find all the information about how you can book on our website. And if you have any questions, please do contact the Church Society office for more information. Having said this is largely all very informal and certainly um, the Lambeth Conference itself, very, very much personal invitation, whatever. And yet somehow it begins in this idea of there's something going wrong, we need to try and do it. But there's no authority to do that. There's no formal disciplinary process that can be um gone through it's just a hope that if we all get together and have a chat and and we can sort of show someone maybe how they're they're sort of out of step with everyone else or maybe we can look at the bible together and and come to a better understanding that that will be enough to to smooth things over and that's i mean it's really interesting that that's sort of how it began because now what we're seeing as you say when we all know what's happening in each other's provinces and dioceses, and and it's becoming clear there are very serious differences, and obviously this is we'll come on to what those are in a moment uh, with respect to the Church of England. In in one sense, Justin Welby is quite right when he says, "I don't have any authority to discipline any other province. I don't have any authority to, you know, tell them what to do, and also they can't hold us to account in the Church of England." for what we do. There's nothing within the structures that that would be any kind of formal obligation at that sort of level. It depends what you mean by authority. So uh, um, the Archbishop is exactly right speaking about juridical authority, so legal authority. All of these churches are independent and they merely get together to consult. But there is such a thing as moral authority. So if you get all the bishops of the world together and 95% of them um, agree with a particular statement or a particular piece of advice, um, that that carries weight. Um, It doesn't carry any legal bite, but it certainly carries moral weight as the sort of majority opinion of the Anglican world. Yes, so and we've how got to balance those two things together. To keep calling yourselves Anglican or part of the Anglican Communion, if you are in your particular province holding positions which are out of step with everybody else on serious issues, there's there's a, a sort of mismatch there. Anyway, sorry, let's go back to last summer's Lambeth Conference. So the, there were a substantial group, I think, who didn't come. Um and on what basis was that? And and what impact would that have if people don't bother coming or, you know, deliberately don't come to that? Does that matter? 
Well, a, a consultation is worse off if there are fewer people in the room, um, and especially if you're only getting one sort of theological section of the Anglican Communion. Uh, it means any sort of pronouncement or call or um, or appeal that the, that conference makes will have less moral moral authority because it will come from a smaller proportion of, of the Anglican world. So uh, three provinces uh, for the last 15 years have declined to take part in um, global gatherings um, because they've decided that these global gatherings uh, are not having proper effect and are there's no point in, in getting to, together to consult if everyone ignores the common mind of the group. Um, so those three provinces are Nigeria, Uganda and Rwanda, um, who refused, therefore, to attend this Lambeth Conference as, as they did a previous one. Um, other parts of the Anglican world attended, um, but tried to make their protests about Anglican trajectories known by being there at the Lambeth Conference. And one of the ways in which they demonstrated that broken fellowship was by not receiving um, sacramental Holy Communion together. Um, there's Holy Communion every day at this sort of event, and they might attend but actually stay in their seats rather than partaking. Um, but they wanted to be in the room to join the conversation. Um, it's and and that's a that's a political question. Do you protest from a distance, or do you do you protest close up? Um, and there's 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 wisdom in both of those methods. But both of those things are signifying um, some level of strained or stressed or breaking relationships um with what's going on and that's stemming those sort of recent things stemming out of what happened with the episcopal church in north america isn't it that there was so the episcopal church went ahead uh with um having same-sex marriages and having uh clergy and bishops who were in same-sex marriages and um they were there was a Lambeth conference where that was not welcomed and there was supposed to be some expression of um, disunity or broken fellowship with them that hasn't been followed through. Is that is that sort of vaguely right? 20 years ago, the, the consecration of Gene Robinson as the Bishop of New Hampshire um, in the United States, uh, that was a seminal moment for, for the Anglican Communion. Um, and that was in 2003. So when Rowan Williams uh, tried to get the bishops together in 2008, uh, many refused to attend if that sort of question in the communion hadn't been dealt with properly, um, that the American church was included as if it was business as, as usual. Um, and uh, Archbishop Rowan strategically made the decision not to invite Gene Robinson to the Lambeth Conference in 2008. That was a um, a very significant political decision. But he also decided not to invite those American bishops who'd broken away from the Episcopal Church and didn't include them either. Um, Justin uh, Welby's approach has been different um, at, in 2022. So he invited uh, those bishops now, more bishops than one, around the Anglican Communion who are in same-sex partnerships and marriages, um, but didn't invite their spouses. Uh, so that was a different way of trying to approach the, the, the same sort of difficult question. Um, who gets invited and who doesn't get invited 
Um, again, doesn't have any legal weight, but is symbolic about where the centre of gravity of the Anglican Communion lies. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I can imagine that to to not get invited would be a pretty strong uh, statement. Um, very interesting. So we've seen that there are signs of stress in the, the Lambeth Conference. I guess the next thing that I'm aware of uh, when the Anglican Communion starts getting mentioned was back in January when we get the Bishop's Statement and then the proposed Prayers of Love and Faith. And Justin Welby makes a personal commitment that he will not use the prayers of love and faith for those who are in same-sex relationships um, in order that he will be able to continue being a, a sort of point of unity as, as this instrument of communion. Now, to me, it seems like a little bit of an empty gesture because I don't imagine many people are phoning up the Archbishop of Canterbury asking for their, you know, for him to do their wedding unless we've got a member of the royal family coming along who's going to want a same-sex blessing, he can probably not have to deal with it. But as a, a sort of statement, there's obviously some concern there that he doesn't want to become the next Gene Robinson not invited to what is in fact his own party. He wants people to still want to come and be with him. How significant and how successful do you think that statement was in reassuring provinces around the communion? It, it hasn't provided any reassurance, bluntly. Uh, so the, the Archbishop is, is very aware that decisions taken in England have repercussions around the whole of the Anglican world. Um, because the Church of England is still held in great honour um, in other parts of, of the Anglican communion, uh, sometimes described as almost as the mother church uh, of the Anglican world because it's given birth uh, to all these, these provinces as its, as its daughters and great-granddaughters as they've, they've spread around the world. So there are these bonds of affection tied to the Church of England very tightly um, in a way which doesn't happen in reverse. So members of the Church of England don't feel intimately connected to the Church of Kenya. Um, the Church of Kenya can do things and it doesn't affect us here. Um, but in Kenya, uh, deep affection for the Church of England. And when we do things, it, it, it affects what's happening in that part of the world, which is one of the reasons that um, the Archbishop of Kenya um, had to go on television. The three main TV channels in Nairobi were all reporting what was happening in the Church of England, as if it was main national news for, for, for Kenyan viewers. It's barely main national news in the in England for English viewers, <laughs> you know. Let alone whatever's happening, as you say, in the Church of Kenya. We we never hear about that, but we barely hear about the Church of England. We, we, we don't exactly. It it doesn't happen in reverse. But but those waves set off by the House of Bishops in in January twenty twenty three in, in the Church of England, uh, those repercussions are being felt right across the world. And so one of the things Archbishop Justin has tried to do is to say. Um, he's tried to live in this space, both to be a Church of England bishop, standing with the House of Bishops, but also to be an Anglican communion primate, uh, needing to continue those relationships globally. I don't think that space can be held. I don't think that tension is possible without the, the rope snapping. Um, but that's his reason for saying um, we're bringing them in in England, but he personally won't use them in England, and, and at least until he retires from post.
It's very interesting, isn't it? We had this discussion at Synod in July last year about how future Archbishops of Canterbury should be appointed. And a big thing was made of their international role in the Anglican Communion. And therefore, um, Synod agreed, although you spoke and put uh, an amendment forward against this, which, which I was very much in sympathy with, that actually he is a Church of England bishop and those are his his formal legal responsibilities of that post and and actually ought to be appointed therefore by the church of england for the church of england even though he has this wider role but we we agreed as synod that actually there would be this sort of international um uh component of the appointment of the archbishop of canterbury and it it seems to me somewhat ironic that having agreed that, and Justin Welby himself, I think, was very keen that that should happen, that we're now in a position less than a year later where the Anglican communion as a whole is is starting to question their relationship with him and with the Church of England. I mean, I, I don't know quite why we had that debate. <laughs> But it, it is a strange thing, isn't it? We, we had that debate because the Anglican Communion is is flexing, is developing, is going in new directions, uh, and therefore these uh, these structures, these ways of working, need to be rethought. Uh, now, my my view is that the the General Synod has rethought that in the wrong direction, um, but um, my amendment monumentally failed, didn't persuade the room. I suspect in the next five years, we're going to need to revisit that. And the General Synod might find it needs to unpick the decisions uh, it's just made about how the Archbishop will be appointed. So the decision that was taken by Synod is that for Justin Welby's successor, uh, as part of the Canterbury Crown Nominations Commission, there will be five global representatives um, helping to choose the next Archbishop of Canterbury from five different regions of the world. Uh, my, My view is that rather than um, ceding power and influence to the rest of the communion, uh, which is the way it's presented, actually what what it does is the reverse. Uh, It simply bolsters England's role, saying that our archbishop, our primate, is different to the other 41 around the world. Somehow our one is particularly special um, and that the communion will always be, be ruled by um, a, an English person living in a palace by the River Thames um, at the centre of English power, why shouldn't the next primate inter pares, the, the leader of the leaders of the Anglican Communion, why shouldn't they be living in Chile? Why shouldn't it be the Archbishop of, of Angola? Why must it always be the English person who rules the roost? Exactly. We've got sort of by virtue of, of historical accident, we've got in this position where the Church of England is seen as as sort of mothership in many ways. But actually, that's not a good thing, necessarily. The Church shouldn't be bound by sort of colonialist history and relationships. And it's great to see um, that it is growing and, and developing in all sorts of places that don't have that history with England. But that makes, I think, even str- more strongly the point that the Archbishop of Canterbury does not need to be the de facto leader of of the global Anglican Church. It would be wonderful, I think, if that was a position that, you know, sort of circulated around the provinces every five years or so and 
and then we'd have a, a really interesting position and it would allow the Archbishop of Canterbury then not to be in this sort of pulling between the Church of England for which he is the leader and, and the Anglican Communion which you know he he has this particular role anyway i do want to move on um to the anglican consultative council so you've talked about this a little bit you are our clergy representative from the church of england is that right that's right yeah. how, how did you how did you get to be that we looked around all the uh, ordained people in the church of england thought andrew atherston he's the one the anglican consultative council has two or three reps from every province uh, gathering at this meeting. Uh, it's met 18 times now since the 1970s. It meets every three years. Um, and our most recent gathering uh, just a few weeks ago was in Accra in Ghana. Um, and so um, I, I was privileged to be part of that group. There might be about 110 members of the Anglican Consultative Council and then quite a lot of staff and consultants, so maybe 150 people all, all together at this, this week-long event. Um, and different provinces uh, choose their reps in different ways. Uh, in many provinces, um, there's there's an election um, and people nominate uh, friends or, or colleagues um, and then um, people will vote on who they want to send. Um, in England, it's more by appointment. Um, so I don't really understand how it happens. Personally, I, I just received a letter saying, would you like to be the next clergy rep? Um, and so I, I agreed to do that. Um, normally, a, a rep will serve three terms, uh, three meetings, and, and then you cycle off and are, are replaced. So in the Church of England, our, our lay rep at the moment is, is uh, Jane Evans, who's a member of the General Synod, uh, and our Episcopal rep is Graham Usher, the Bishop of Norwich. Um, so we're the, the little English team. Lovely. And so you were in Ghana, it was sort of the week after General Synod or, or so, wasn't it? It was not long after. What what was on the agenda then? What sort of things did the Anglican Consultative Council talk about? A, a vast array of initiatives that are happening around the Anglican world and um, many very, very excellent things uh, that Anglicans are working on globally that seem to have very little... Uh, airtime in England. Um, because when we think of the Anglican Communion, we're often thinking about doctrine and theology and political clashes and bishops and all, all of these sorts of wrestles. But most of the work happening around the Anglican Communion is uh, joyful Christians getting on and collaborating uh, in really important initiatives. Um, so one of those, for example, is uh, church planting and, and evangelism. There's a task team to, for provinces to learn from each other um, in, in how this ought to work. So we, we discuss those sorts of themes. Um, there are major questions about uh, building safer churches and, and what that looks like around the world. And some provinces are further ahead in their thinking um, and their, their, their rubrics and, and procedures than others. So we, we kind of share ideas on that. Domestic abuse is a... Uh, is a major problem for churches around the world. Um, and we've got common cause there as Anglicans. No matter kind of where theologically we're standing, that's something that we can combine on um, and do well together. Um, lots of social initiatives, um, lots of work in terms of um, environmental action and what that might look like. So, uh, you know, here in England, we have an occasional flood and they're, they're becoming more frequent. But to hear from... 
Anglican brothers and sisters in the Solomon Islands um, about the way in which um, their entire communities are disappearing because of the rising sea levels. Um, I, I, I want to know that as an Anglican in the Northern Hemisphere. I want to be connected with these sorts of concerns in other parts of the world. So most of the Anglican Consultative Council is, is talking about um, evangelistic church growth um, and, and, and sort of social questions that we can combine on very fruitfully. And how would somebody listening to this who's in the Church of England in the Northern Hemisphere who thinks, yeah, I want to know about those things too, how would they find out about what the Anglican Communion is talking about and what's going on around the world? Is there, is there a newsletter we can sign up to? Are there reports from the Anglican Consultative Council? Yes, uh, sign, sign up for all of those. Um, so there is a headquarters. It's called the Anglican Communion Office, the ACO, um, which is based at the moment in North London but it's like the secretariat for the, the global communion. Um, there are many very excellent reports coming out on all sorts of questions, um, which haven't just been produced by one province, but produced by all 42. Those are published. Many of them are free to download online. Um, and there's an Anglican communion um, news service, which is tweeting out news about what's happening. Uh, there's an e-bulletin that, that you can sign up with. So that's a really good way of being a globally connected Anglican. Great. I will try and put links to all of those in the show notes. Justin Welby uh, gave a speech at uh, the Anglican Consultative Council in, in Accra, which seemed to indicate to me that he would be willing to cede his role in the Anglican Communion for the sake of having same-sex blessings in the Church of England that if the whole of the rest of the communion said, we can't be in fellowship with you anymore, he, he would still go ahead with that. I don't know if I'm over-reading that or if that's how it felt in the room and, and what sort of responses there were to what he said. I, I certainly don't think he was offering it as a, as a, a sort of equivalent deal. We'll do this in England, but we'll agree to give you, you know, this in terms of the, the communion. Yeah. Um, it was much more the Archbishop saying, uh, we're in a new world now. Um, and the strains in the communion, not just in England, but around the world are, are increasingly felt. It feels like our provinces are moving away from each other. Um, and yet the structures we have in place are structures which belong in the 1960s, uh, not in the 2020s and, and beyond. Uh, so we need to rethink our structures um, to take account of the global world in which we are and also the diversity of the Anglican Communion as, as is increasingly apparent. It's not just England at stake in that, but you know every province has a, has a stake in that question. Um, so uh, there, there's a project uh, which is happening at a rate of knots, a kind of emergency project over the next 12 months um, to come up with proposals for new ways of organising the Communion. Um, there's... Uh, a group called um, I Ask You Fo, uh, the international, they love acronyms, uh, the, the Inter, um, Inter-Anglican Commission on Unity, Faith and Order. Um, and it's chaired by one of our English bishops, Bishop Graham Tomlin, um, but it's getting ecclesiologists and theologians and bishops around the world to say, how can we make our structures fit for purpose in the, in the 21st century? Um, but it, it feels like that's a project which... Um, the time is running out for, um, because many of the 
bishops of the global south are saying to the, the old structures, well, you've had your chance. We've been saying for you for 20 years, you need to rethink and you've refused to rethink. So now we're going to do the thinking in, in a new way. And the, and the global south bishops are suggesting a, a kind of potentially an alternative structure which might develop over the next few years, uh, distinct from these these old 1950s structures um, of of the Anglican Communion. So I ask you, foe really has its work cut out. Um, they promised to report by January 2024, um, but that they're going to have to work at a rate of knots to bring those proposals together. Yeah, it is so interesting to me over the last few years. The more I've um, read and <coughs> heard about different kinds of Anglican history is just how much that we think is traditional always been there Anglicanism is actually really quite recent and it's interesting that that is also the case in the Anglican communion although it, it had its roots as you say in the 19th century a lot of what it currently looks like is really only 50 or 60 years old and actually <clears throat> that is really encouraging to me things can change things that we think are not working can be changed. They're not built into our system for 500 years since since the Church of England began. They're, they're innovations. And so we can have more innovations, better innovations. Um, but as you say, it does feel as though that we're at a, a kind of crunch point where some provinces are already saying enough is enough. And so this is my final question, and it may be an unfair one, but if the Anglican Communion were to just fall apart, um, would that matter? Would that matter? They're all independent provinces. They all carry on as their own denominations legally and financially and and you know, with their own governance structures and so on. So what would we lose if we lost the Anglican Communion? We would lose a huge amount. Uh, we, we would lose um, the fruits of... Christian fellowship around the world. Um, and many of the good things on which we can collaborate uh, would, would be lost. Um, and many of the ways in which provinces can help each other uh, in advice, in, in modelling, in resourcing, in, in working together um, would, would disappear. Now, there, there are clearly some things that it is um, increasingly difficult to work upon um, because theologically and, and sometimes morally as well, we're, we're in different places. There are some things we, we simply can't work on together anymore. But there's a whole bunch of other things that we can continue to work on. And, and that would be lost between the provinces. The other thing that would happen for us in the Church of England is that we would lose connection with many of our Anglican sisters and brothers in the global south. Um, because um, I, I'm a member of the Church of England. I'm in the global north. It's a province which is increasingly moving in a, a, well, I think, frankly, an unbiblical direction in some of our recent decisions. Um, and if we fall apart, there'll be many of us left in the north um, losing contact with our, our friends in the south. And that would be a disaster all around. Well, let's pray that disaster is somehow avoided. Uh, I don't know what that will look like uh, for the future of the Anglican Communion. But it's been really great to hear from you, Andrew, uh, helping us to understand a little bit about what the communion actually is and how it's got to the point where it is now. 
do tune in again next week where I hope we will be hearing uh, more from our global brothers and sisters. Uh, Lee Gatiss is at uh, GAFCON in Kigali and he will be reporting back uh, from there on the podcast for us. So do tune in again next week. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Church Society podcast. You can find the whole podcast archive on our website, churchsociety.org. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your usual podcast app. And we'd love it if you were able to leave a review or give us a rating over there as well. Mm -hmm.